0: She's Julie Roxanne.
1: And he's Alistair. And And this
0: is is Far Out. Out. A podcast about stepping off the beaten path and learning to live from our center.
1: So I don't want to box myself into a bunch of plans that are going to not fit who I'll become, you know?
2: Yeah, I just wrote down the phrase mediocre now brain. That's a good one. <laughs>
1: it's so true.
2: And he's sort of part of their disaster response team wow. that is based on the civic training that he sort of invented for himself that traces back to a conversation <laughs> over boiling rabbit in a hostel, right? <laughs> Or you can make your own path. And by doing that, you're doing something that's much more dynamic and much more personal and much more life affecting than if you're just following somebody else's path and thinking, huh, well, this path isn't as good as they thought it was. I want my money back.
1: Hello, beautiful people, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Far Out Podcast.
0: Welcome. It's great to have you here. We have a great episode. Yes. Yes, it is a great episode. It is a great episode. I don't know where you stopped. But yeah, we did. It is a great
1: episode. (laughs) Today we talk with Rolf Potts. Rolf Potts is a travel writer, an adventurer, and a teacher.
0: He's uh, he's written for such respectable publications <laughs> like The New Yorker, The New York Times, and National Geographic.
1: And he's also the author of a few different books, including Marco Polo Didn't Go There and Vagabonding, An Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel.
0: And... This is how I met Rolf, at least uh, through his, his book. ideas. His ideas, yeah, which is through vagabonding, um, which I think is really responsible for uh, kind of part of the revolution of vagabonding of traveling that that's really taken over in the last twenty years. He kind of wrote the Bible, a yeah. handbook for this style of travel. And yes, there were others before him, but I think he really brought it to a larger audience. And he and that book, for me, I read that right before I left and uh, was was huge.
1: And uh, you'll hear us talking about this book a lot during the episode, but we highly recommend you check it out. Honestly, it is super relevant, even now in a time where it is hard to plan any kind of travel, vagabonding trip. It is such a philosophy, lifestyle, outlook on life book that is also so well-written, and we highly recommend you check it out.
0: Without further ado, let's get into it.
1: Let's get into it.
0: Good morning, good morning, good morning.
1: Good morning, Alistair. And good morning, everyone. Good evening, good afternoon. We're happy you're here.
0: So I'm really excited to welcome Rolf Potts, the author of Vagabonding, to the podcast. Welcome, Rolf. Glad to be talking to you.
1: Mm, (laughs) It's a pleasure.
0: I'm really excited about this conversation because uh, I read Vagabonding for the first time at the end of 2014. And at that point, I had just actually left the business world. I was in startups for a while and I decided I was going to travel, but I didn't know how I was going to do it. And your book turned out to be, uh, which I think it has been for a lot of people, a kind of travel Bible, and it was surprising in the fact that it, it was like such a good blend of both uh, practical kind of tips and and really down to earth information about how to travel long term. but it was also and this is the part that I think has made it so like lasting for for me is it was also a book about how to live a different lifestyle that was very counter to, I I guess, contemporary culture. Mm. And it's been a really powerful book. And I wonder maybe to start just to orient people, if you wouldn't mind giving us kind of your definition um, and how you think about what vagabonding is, which is the title of your book.
2: Yeah, well, I'd like to keep the definition a little bit slippery. I think in my book, I quote Bruce Lee as saying that, um, the, the the dynamic individual is better than any system. But also in the book, I sort of define vagabonding as taking time off from normal life to dedicate a portion of your life to travel, not just in vacation, uh, but to travel slowly and with great attention in such a way that travel becomes a part of your normal life instead of being an escape from your normal life.
0: Mm.
2: I think and there's, there's really no, a, but um, sorry, but just time wise, oftentimes, you know, there's in, in Europe, you have gap year cultures in the UK in particular, a year is a good time. But uh, sometimes I, I really think that the personal system is best. If you can spare six weeks, then that beats, you know, two weeks, if you mm. can spare six years, then that's awesome, you know, mm-hmm. so um, it's really about um, the core is about time wealth It's about realizing that we're all born equally rich in time and really, The way you spend your time is the way you live your life. And to be a little bit less materialistic about the way you think of life and think about your life as this time, this precious gift that you're given. And if travel is something you dream about, then maybe you should think of strategic ways of living your time in a way that enriches your life and allows you to travel the earth.
0: Yeah. And that brings up something that I know was true for me when I picked up your book. Well, it was true for me until like maybe a month or two before I picked up your book, which was I was time poor, and I wonder if maybe you'd talk a little bit more about that that time rich time poor thing because it's something you talk a lot about in your book, and I think it's kind of it was a powerful concept for me because I was making six figures and I had money, but I didn't have a lot of time. Yeah, well, that's a
2: that's sort of an American disease, right? Mm-hmm. You know that we're we're all sort of competing to be successful, and that's sort of in air quotes. Uh, and actually, money is a good metric for success, but actually being able to control your own time in a way that that makes you happy is also a good metric for success and This is a philosophy that goes way, way back i mean it 's in the Bible, you read the Stoics, they talk about how um, oftentimes your wealth and your ostentation can be at odds with your happiness and I talk about John Muir in vagabonding uh the the nineteenth century naturalist, and he was a person he actually made a lot of money uh exporting wine to Hawaii you don't, most people don't know this about him. Um, And then he decided to stop and and just sort of explore the Sierra wilderness of California. And and one of his fellow millionaires at the time was sort of uh, grousing about how he could have made more money and he was losing all these business opportunities. And he said, well, you know, I'm rich because I know that I have enough money. Um, Whereas this guy doesn't realize when Money, enough money is enough. I'm not probably not paraphrasing that completely accuracy, but it's just the idea that he had enough money so he didn't need to just sort of have a race with oblivion to make more and more money. You know, a central idea of time wealth is the memento mori. Just remember that you're going to die. Remember that mm-hmm. your time on yeah. earth is limited. And um, I think he realized that. And so, you know, he's much more memorable than his fellow, mem- than his fellow millionaires at the time, the the wine exporters of the 19th century simply because he harnessed his passions and he, he explored um, the world, and specifically parts of California that are iconic places like Yosemite these days. And so I think it's just a good thing to keep in mind. It applies to any cultures, but we Americans are especially bad at time wealth, that sometimes we just, we're so fixated with these signifiers of success and with our bank account and with our real estate and all this other stuff you know, it's not bad to keep that in mind, but at the end of the day, how do you want to spend these precious days that we have in life on earth? And time wealth is a central part of, of, um, sort of making sense and managing that aspect of your life that can apply not only to travel, but also to spending time with family or giving back to your community or any number of other uh, passions and hobbies that you might have.
1: I think this is, this is a great, point. And I think this leads me to something that I've been sitting with as we were preparing for this interview. A part of me couldn't help but think we're going to talk about travel at a time where no one can really travel or that it's actually a a strange time for travel and vagabonding. Um, we ourselves were overseas when this happened and we've, we've had to adjust. And so, but I realized uh, upon rereading your book, I realized just that vagabonding and wandering the way I see it is not so much something that happens in the physical realm. It's not, you're not a vagabond just because you go through places. I feel like it's more, and you say this in your book, it's more of a, a mindset and outlook on life. It's a philosophy of life. And I think this is what is most interesting to me, because when you look at it this way, you can become a vagabond of life. It can be, you can just move through life as a traveler with the curiosity and the openness and the surrendering to whatever may come your way. And I've been, uh, you know, creating a life that's like this for the past four years and it's getting, it's so much more rich. It's so much fuller than the life I had before where I was, where there was never enough basically. And when I was very time poor,
2: Yeah. And one great thing about travel, just as a metaphor, travel is a place where you're not in your own habits and your own familiar things and your own bad habits for that Mm. matter. And so even if you're stuck at home or stuck near home for a pandemic, you can challenge yourself in the manner of travel by breaking out of those habits and by, you know, maybe taking a different way to the grocery store to get your pandemic food or just <laughs> sort of embracing aspects travel forces newness on you because you're in a place where you know nothing you know mm. um i often say that you know there's that old dichotomy between travelers and tourists but in a way that can become sort of a false dichotomy because mm. we're all tourists we're all outsiders none of us the local people are the experts we're just these bumbling people who are lost and but being lost is part of the joy of being of of travel, and I think one, one for all of the benefits that we get from things like smartphone and uh, smartphones and online information, being lost is a gift to travel, being a little bit lonely is a gift to travel, being a little bit bored is a gift to travel, and mm. so during this time of pandemic, not only are these good habits to have, they, they actually help against anxiety, you know? If you're just sitting around reading news headlines, arguing with people on social media, that's not good for your mental health whereas mm. going for a walk or or trying to find a new way to see a neighborhood that you've been stuck in for several weeks that is some that's a metaphorical part of travel that you can apply to your own home
0: i'm glad you mentioned the the news thing because this is something i've also heard you talk about um and it, there's the money aspect right or or changing this idea of like what what success is being time rich versus time poor but there's also Um, You point out there's also the information aspect of really managing or being mindful of uh, the information you're plugging into. Yeah, well, um, you know, we have all this information,
2: but it's not making us any smarter, really. (laughs) And it's not making us any more mentally balanced, you know, that, that there was a time just over a century ago, where educated people not only read Shakespeare, they memorized Shakespeare because Shakespeare was one of 10 books they would read in 10 years. You know, mm. just, there was less information available. And so that didn't make them dumber, it just made them engage the information they had in a different way. Well, now we're at the time where we can just sort of Google any Shakespeare work or anything written by anyone and have it at our fingertips, but our relationship with that is so much shallower. So as travelers, I think it's good to strike a balance, as travelers even at home, it's good to strike a balance between the information that's available mm. versus just being where you are, being a, a person who's walking down a street in Vienna, for example, and instead of getting the Yelp recommendation for where to eat, eat, you just ask somebody on the street. Odds are that you're gonna get a more dynamic recommendation there. And so that's just one example of many ways in which this dearth of inf- or this um this deluge of information is making life it seems like we're getting more options but in a way it's it's sort of making us dumber and less dynamic with the way we interact with the world and this can apply to news you know there's just so much clickbait news that's designed to engage you emotionally just so mm. it can hold your attention right um there's all of these different strategies for approaching a city when, in fact, for thousands, literally thousands of years, your uh, traveler's approach to the city was to walk in, and if they got lost, they'd ask someone where to get found. If they got hungry, they'd ask somebody where a good place to eat is. And those tools are still available to us. Even with our smartphones in our pockets, we can still use those time-honored travel traditions that are maybe less saturated with information, but maybe more open to things like happiness and serendipity and other things that travel has always rewarded us with
0: maybe more signal to noise too because a a common experience i think travelers often have which i know i've had is you go to a country that's supposed to be dangerous at least according to your home country and it turns out there's just people there like you for the most part and that maybe the government there maybe the government is dangerous a little bit but you're not really like you're not hanging out at the government's house Mm -hmm. you know you're 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 with the locals. And actually those can be some of the most friendly places in the world. It can be incredible. And that, that kind of, you know, for me blew my mind. And I think it's, it's, it's an insight that's, that's worth traveling for. And then what I particularly noticed with the pandemic is there's the reverse of that too. Like we were living in Guatemala for eight months and, you know, I think people in the U S were worried about us Mm. being in Guatemala and (laughs) <laughs> the news we were getting was like the U.S. is the worst place in the world right now. Like there's such a filter, the information you get depends on where you are and where it's coming from and what the medium is. And it, it was just such, it was so surreal how people in the U.S. feel safe and were worried about us, but we were like doing fine. Yeah. And most of the news we were getting was like the U.S. is like rioting and. It, and I don't know, it's just such a crazy illustration of of like the distortions in information or or how hard it is. And I think going back to what you were saying is a lot of times information is of higher quality locally or not always. But I, I think there tends to be sometimes more signal to it. Oh, absolutely. And And it's funny
2: that all of my friends who've been stuck overseas are... are Based on that stereotype of how America is right now, they feel a little bit grateful that they're you know (laughs) stuck in Poland or or Peru or wherever they are, uh, simply because it's that that noise has gotten noisier. I always used to say that we live the news cycle is a man bites dog world. You know Hmm. that you're not getting actual documentary empirical information about places. You're getting the worst of the worst. Well, now it's like man bites dog, and by the way, you could die in your sleep of this horrible disease, right? (laughs) But it, we're sort of in this clickbait world. It's we're, we're past the newspapers that are trying to get our attention. And now we're on all of these platforms that are fighting for our attention mm. by giving us the worst news possible. And it's funny that I, you know, I live in, in Kansas. It's very isolated and peaceful here. But every once in a while, you run into someone who is opposed to masks. And it's also because of the noise. You know, they're hearing these political noise about how somehow it's politically, you know, anti-individualist to, to wear a mask. And it's like, well, you're listening to the wrong noise, you know it's just let's just try and be a community and and help each other a little bit and so mm. just being um I've had no problems it's the population density is so low here that I don't have a whole lot to worry about, and I live in a I live in a rural place, and so it's not a huge problem, but even inside a place like the u s or a place like Kansas, people are hearing really paranoid news about each other mm. that is not borne out by conversations on the street corner, right. And so it's like we have this molecular level of man bites dog now that is really making things even more confused. And in a way is even more of a reason to get out there and travel and get out there and, and start conversations with people mm. and get past those stereotypes. I was just, my newest podcast episode is gonna be about Egypt. Mm. And it was about my experiences there 20 years ago. And I was going through my old notes and my old stories. I just, I met so many normal people in Egypt. You know, you would never realize just how many dudes there are just Normal guys who are like someone that you 'd know from high school, they just happen to be egyptian um just and dudes. you don't get that the news the news doesn't tell you that yeah so there's there's um like basically every stereotype from your high school there's an egyptian equivalent and if you if you wander around cairo plus- you know a place arab cultures are are you know famously hospitable and outgoing so It's just it's fun to, during a time like this when we can't travel and when there's a lot of paranoid information going around, to go back to my travel notes and just realize when you go to a place and you talk to people just how easy and chill it can be.
0: This gets into one of, I think, is kind of the core messages of your book, or it's threaded along in a lot of areas of your book, around vagabonding as a way to experience the real, or vagabonding as a way to get into experience and to Really have experience, I find your book in that way it's spiritual I think oh, yeah. a lot of what you talk about vagabonding is a route to um, getting in touch with reality
2: absolutely and and I think sometimes we forget that getting in touch with reality is literally the essence of spiritual life in yeah. certain ways you know there's there's this idea that spiritual life is sitting in the lotus position on a mountain when in fact the richest Parts of daily life, especially in a faraway place, is just those new smells, those new experiences, those difficulties that you overcome, you know, um, dealing with uh, I think I even mentioned this in Vagabond and just like dealing with diarrhea on a long haul bus Mm. uh, can sort of teach you fortitude and spiritual lessons. That you are not going to get at a yoga retreat or whatever. Learned not humility. to knock yoga retreats, <laughs> yeah. But but you learn humility. You you learn to deal with things. And I think that there's so many layers that take us away from the real right now. Hmm. Again, from those phones in our pocket and those yeah. ever-present, you know, YouTube videos and streaming this or that. It's it's fun. It's entertaining. But it takes us away from that, that spiritual core of life. Of those those gifts of travel that have always been there. And sometimes there are difficulties. I mean, I think of a place like India where you can just literally have the worst experience of your life and the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in about 10 minutes, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> where you just go to, through the extremes and it doesn't just happen, I'm sure it happens in Guatemala too, where basically if you're willing to embrace the real and not mediate your life through your phone or through your computer or your television set, then suddenly you're on this plane, this this very old human plane that's a very spiritual way of interacting not with the world, just with the world, but with your own life. And it's, um, it's really one of the greatest rewards of a process like travel.
1: I think I, this is this is really inspiring, especially like aligning with reality has been like being with the real aligning with reality as the essence of happiness. And there's just equanimity and feeling stable and feeling like everything is all right. Travel has definitely taught me that a lot. But I feel like I'm it's it's something that i have to cultivate even outside of travel and 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 i find i can do that when we we lived in a trailer in france for like a year and there was i think we came we came back from traveling and we came back and immediately the first thing we did after we came back we were emptying our suitcases trying to fall back into a routine and within an hour we flooded the caravan the the trailer I I remember we were like mopping water everywhere after like a a 20-hour flight we were exhausted and we were mopping water and I just remember thinking oh this is life too you know like sometimes you over you overflow your water tank and you flood your house this is life too and there was some of there was like a comical aspect to this of oh yeah i don't have to fight this either you know like i can't i have diarrhea on on an overnight bus in india this is life too and and i think this there's so much peace that comes from that realization and i feel this is why it's this is why this vagabonding mindset for me is almost like something you can apply everywhere oh your dishwasher broke and you flooded your kitchen this is life too and it's it's another encounter on the journey of life. Um I, I, I think like that can get pretty woo-woo, but I, I do think this is the essence of just stop reacting to everything as if it's a personal thing you know like where where we can tend to feel ah oh, this is it's against me it's always in my way of doing things and i think this get back this gets back to the time poor time wealthy kind of con- comment it's like when you feel like you don't have enough time you will obviously see this as a setback or and it goes also with the i i want to direct this into the definite the thing of success too but
0: I, i'm thinking it. of a quote um Rolf, that I think you put in your book from John Muir, where he says something around that he basically says, like, I wouldn't mind being detoured on a trip for 40 years mm-hmm. or something. And I think it gets at this idea, which is like, if you don't have enough time, everything's a challenge or it's an obstacle, it's in your way. Mm-hmm. And one of the beauties of, of being time rich is that you can really embrace everything.
2: Yeah. And I think that you can not, you can embrace and celebrate things, including the flooded trailer. Mm -hmm. I think again, not to pick too much on social media, but one of the big metaphors now for travel media is Instagram. It's the, it's perfection. You know, it's the platonic ideal of how this beach is supposed to look like. Not only does the beach look great, but you have chiseled abs, right? Mm. Well, (laughs) that's not how it works, right? (laughs) That actually uh, some of the most interesting and, and, uh, and growth-inducing times of travel can be those horrible experiences. Mm-hmm. And then that's also a part of the blessed process of life, you know, mm. that life is actually a little, it would be sort of bland and depressing if, if every moment was an empty beach with six-pack abs. That is back. to
0: Orange County. I mean, I've, I've had that experience. It is really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, it's, I mean, it's just those
2: ideas that there are so many small things that are that are also a blessing of life, not just the the ideal things that we would put on Instagram, but these mistakes. Mm. Um, and I mean, again, this goes back to spiritual traditions, not just the idea of time wealth, but the idea that that we're blessed with every moment of our life. I've been reading some Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Vietnamese um, Buddhist philosopher, and he talks about the spiritual process of washing dishes so mm. that while you're washing dishes, you're just washing dishes. You're not thinking about what happens next. But you're sort of savoring the ritual because that's a part of your life too mm-hmm. and if you're if you're trying to just rush through the dishes and get onto the you know your your volleyball game or your run or your movie you're going to watch later, then you're sort of cheating the experience of washing the dishes just like you don't want to cheat the experience of dealing with a flooded trailer, right yeah, um I, I think in Vagabond and I talk about Peter Matheson, uh, a quote from his book the Snow Leopard, about how. He comes to savor these simple moments, like the smudgy juniper fire, and the fact that when he pours water into his cup, that's all he does. And that's really a spiritual idea, you know—just the idea that you're not waiting for life to be perfect. You know, you're not—you're not, you're not waiting for that beach to be empty, but you're just so celebrating all of the moments of life. And then, when they're really wonderful moments, where you have that beach to yourself and you watch the sun go down, and you're so grateful—that's awesome. But then you also have the time where you flood. The van you, and you <laughs> laugh and think, well, that's part of life too. Um, and so that, that's another thing that travel can can it can it can keep you humble and remind you that things aren't perfect like um, we're led to believe sometimes.
1: Yeah, and and that actually reminds me. I was listening to your interview uh, with Tim Ferriss uh, the other day, and and you guys were talking about this idea of optimizing for efficiency and how mm. uh, is, and this like appreciation versus. Achievement kind of mindset, and I remember when I met Alistair. I'm I'm French originally, and so when I met Alistair, he was like, I noticed how he was optimizing a lot of things for efficiency, and that Mm. felt very strange to me to some degree because yes, we have that in my culture, but it's not as prevalent as in the American culture. And so I, I loved, I loved what you were saying on that podcast about like you can't optimize a pasta dish in Rome for efficiency you know like this means nothing you just you're you're here to savor the moment you're not here to make it somehow better or more efficient and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this like shifting from from achievement to appreciation because I feel like this is one of the either results or or and goals of vagabonding
2: Well, absolutely. And I actually have a French example that I use a lot because I teach a class, a writing class in Paris every year. And I have, most of my students are Americans Mm. and they'll come and they'll sit down for lunch. Um, and they'll want to rush through lunch like an American does. Mm -hmm. They'll think if this lunch isn't 30 minutes long, so I can go off and and see the Louvre and the Champs-Élysées, then, then somehow my trap, my experience is being cheated from me. And so, so actually my students will get really impatient with, with the waiters who will not immediately come and, and give the bill. The, and, um, <laughs>
1: they do take and, their time to do that. French, that's yeah. very French.
2: <laughs> well, they do. And so my students will say, well, I want to see Paris. And it's like, no, <laughs> you are experiencing paris the 3 hour lunch is is beautifully parisian you know mm. the idea that french people don't try to rush through the day so they can pack 10 tourist sites in but it's it's probably more french to sit and just enjoy a 3 hour lunch and enjoy have one more creme brulee or get another <laughs> bottle of wine and have a you know, have some more coffee because that is literally what a french or a parisian experience consists of and so I often use that as a metaphor for travel anywhere in the world that we we have this American idea of how we should experience places and it usually has to do with bullet lists or mm-hmm. with, again, maximizing efficiency. It's like, well, like getting in through this door of the Louvre so we can knock off 45 minutes and, and sprint our way to the Pompidou on the same day. Mm-hmm. Well, do you we really want to see the Louvre and the Pompidou on the same day? That's a lot. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. And so it's it's something oftentimes... <laughs> what american vagabonders will do is it takes them a couple weeks to sort mm. of scrape that scrape those instincts away to realize that as much as they race around trying to do what they think they're supposed to do those accidental moments you know when they're in an alley in thailand as happened to me on my first vagabonding trip and just sort of watching the world go by and realizing that you're not home anymore you can let the day play out however you want to and it, even if your bucket list has Machu Picchu and you decide you wanna to go to the, you know, Peruvian Amazon instead, well, you can do that, there's there's no rules, that you can basically follow your heart, and you can, another thing that I say is that you're always gonna be smarter after a couple days of travel than you were when you were planning the trip. Yeah. And so if your <laughs> itinerary suddenly falls apart, well, maybe you found something that's more awesome than Machu Picchu and you just wanna enjoy it, you know, you're learning a cooking class, or you're mm. traveling, you know, you're you're learning to surf, you know, down in Pichilimo on the coast and you can just let Machu Picchu happen some other time because that is the joy of travel is breaking out of that micromanaged life and just sort of living into this much more expansive and, and spiritually rewarding life that that travel is is such a, does such a great job of presenting to you.
1: Yeah. And I think that's such a great way to surrender to, because I remember how it feels when you have a plan and then you have a hunch that you should do something else or something. You meet someone that tells you about this thing and then all of a sudden it's you want to do it instead of following your original plan. You end up having the best experiences. I mean, Alistair and I met in a chai shop in Rajasthan in the middle of nowhere, India and and it's only because of all these serendipitous encounters and things that we ended up doing and delaying our leaving by a couple of weeks because we ended up liking where we were and then we met and boom the rest is history i feel like we underestimate what can happen when we follow those sequences of event and something that like you you brought up that concept on on the interview with Tim Ferriss which was the concept of the flaneur the flaneur of the walk until your day gets interesting and Mm. and what can happen when you do that even in your hometown i lived in paris for seven years and i used to do that on the regular it was always a joy i would just end up finding a museum i didn't know existed and and walked in and learned a lot about water on mars like i have really good memories of this and just discovering parts of paris that i didn't know and i feel like that's such an appropriate thing to explore when most of us are stuck in a in a small area of the world and you can do that you can just go out and walk until your day gets interesting
2: yeah and and just give yourself permission to do that and mm. and give yourself permission to fall in love with what you find and the metaphor for you guys is literal like if if you had been trying to check off your Rajasthan bucket list you may not have met each other you you may have preempted love because your bucket list was too rigid right yeah um, and so so I love the idea of that. You know, that's a great metaphor that you can use that. Um, yeah, sure. You can. We didn't we didn't knock off our bucket list, but we found
0: each other. So mm-hmm. how about that? <laughs> and it, it's it's getting rid of those expectations, right? Those like predefined because those kind of limit options. Right. And you talk a lot about an option rich life and this to me when I'm traveling and you're totally right about it taking a couple of weeks, I would say for my thick head, it probably took a couple of months to like get out of that. <laughs> Doing, mm. doing kind of thing of, of trying to, you know, as an American also, I think there's, you feel like, oh God, I only have, you, you have you're you going to have to go back or like there's that, that concern. It's the time at poor least. thing for yeah. sure. Yeah, and now it's been like four years, so I haven't yet gone back, but that's somehow still in the back of my head sometimes. But this option rich way of living where you can, I think it's freedom, right? Like you can go do different things. There's possibility. And I think this is one of, the benefits of vagabonding, but it's also one of the benefits of just wandering, right? If you find yourself walking through a forest and, and you have the day and yeah. you can go in any direction. And I'd like to get at this with you because your book is com- like, in some ways it's common sense. It's not common, but it, it's in some ways it's like, it's there's something very profoundly simple about it. And mm-hmm. in some ways you read it and you're like, yeah, of course, which is why it was so refreshing because I read it at a time where, that wasn't living that way. And it's so simple yet. So it's so counter to our culture, especially around wandering. I feel like our culture tends to, at least my culture, the West, the American culture, the Western culture, we really devalue this idea of vagabonding or this idea of wandering, of not having a goal Mm. of, of not know. And I think part of it's probably the fear of the unknown or the fear of opening yourself to that, which is, a lot of what travel is all about. But I wonder if you could talk about this because I think that's part of the reason why your book feels so counterculture in some ways is that you're saying, hey, we should quit more things. We should get rid of a bunch of stuff and just open up and, and kind of in a way drift. And I feel like dr- that, even that word has a negative connotation in America. Yeah, well, um, actually French has, is it
2: dérive? Uh, oui, that means, dérive,
1: dérive, yes.
2: Dérive, yeah. Actually, um, in the 1960s, the Situationists would would practice what what was dérive, which it was it was flintering. Basically, they would they were sort of frustrated with themselves for being too trapped into habit, and so they would do the dérive through the city. They would wander through the city in ways that that intentionally broke these chains of habit. Mm. And so it, it's it's that same tradition that literally that word drift was used as a positive thing in Paris in the 1960s. And so I, I again, I think that we are, with our compulsion in a place like America to plan, we assume that having no specific micromanaged plan is a bad thing. When in fact, the plan actually limits possibility. You know, um, you talk about an option-rich life or the you know the thrill of possibility. You know, what, what an exciting thing to embrace? You know, when when, when every possibility is an option. I think too, sort of in a um in an iPhone app age when in a way your you your crowdsourced Yelp app is, is is in a way smarter than you because it has listened to ten thousand people who've given their restaurant recommendations. But in a way, there's something more rewarding about sort of a hard one place of of finding your own your own joy, your own food. I I was in the closest town to where I live now, Salina, Kansas, I I found it like a homemade bakery. There's like German bread at the Seraphim Bakery in Salina. What a great thing to discover, to randomly stumble onto. And I I just think that not knowing what happens next Mm. can be such a gift. And you have to get used to that though, because not knowing what happens next, like in, in a boardroom environment, in a corporate environment, that means that you are in trouble, you know that means that you're not doing your job. you're not in control but you're you're not in control, but when actually part of the joy of travel is literally not being in control. um and so there's other things that I recommend in vagabonding elsewhere. I'm just going to that bus station, finding a little town that you've never heard of and going there mm. instead of the big tourist attraction, you know, because people especially young travelers, I used to be the same way. they complain about there being too many tourists in a place. And it's like, well, that's because it's <laughs> because you're day, going there. <laughs> it's because you're going there, and 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 tourists like each other, especially young travelers. You know, it's fun to meet a German when you're in the Philippines. Yeah, but don't complain about that. Just walk to a place where there are fewer people, and then have that surprise. You know, figure out a few phrases of the language, and, and figure things out. And it's amazing how adaptable we are as humans. I think we forget this sometimes. That yeah. Our, our, our smartphones can organize our lives in such a sleek way that we forget that humans have always figured it out. You know, mm. um, some of the best travelers in the world are actually uh, refugees and immigrants. You know, they're not exactly sure what's going to happen next. They have a war in their country. They have some sort of poverty that's dictating their, their decisions. But then they come to a place, the US or, or Europe or whatever, and they just, they figure it out. You know, and America is an immigrant culture. Um, and so, you know, many Americans, maybe most Americans are descended of people who figured it out long ago Mm -hmm. in conditions far worse than what we're dealing with now. And so I think maybe the first step to embracing options and possibility is just letting go, you know, just, I, I think I say in vagabonding, it's, it's good to know your options, but not your destiny. And so just, keeping in mind your options, but keeping in mind that sometimes your options are limited by not being in the place. And once you go to the place, there's you have a, a whole wealth of things to do and you can wander around and you can make mistakes. One, mm. one mistake I made when I first started vagabonding in my mid twenties, I didn't want to be the dumb backpacker who was always screwing up. <laughs> um, and who was getting scammed and paying too much. Yeah. And then I realized eventually it doesn't matter. Like we, we all start there and in fact, after years, I was still getting scammed sometimes. Yes. You, know, you, get, you get saltier, but why Why be afraid of making mistakes? Why be humiliated by making mistakes when as travelers, it's travelers who are willing to make mistakes, just like travelers who are willing to uh, learn languages are the mm-hmm. ones who throw themselves out and are not perfectionists when it mm-hmm. comes to learning languages. So yeah, just... just uh, being a fool sometimes is one of your greatest tools.
1: And I think there's a couple of things I want to expand on here. Like the first one that you said was you this not knowing what's next, right? Like kind of letting go of the plan and not knowing what's next. And I was, I was like, it was in the back of my mind while you were talking and I just realized, it's just it's an illusion that you can ever think you can never Mm. know what's next you can never know even if you stick to your plan then boom a pandemic hits and your plan doesn't stand a chance so it's like it's such an important practice if you do it in the travel context I feel like I've brought that as a practice for my own life which leads me to the second thing that I was wanting to expand on which is Yeah, you said you can have these uh, options and destiny kind of thing. And the way I think about it is I have my intentions. I have the things that I know I want now, but... I have no way of imagining the things I will know in a week or in a year or in 10 years. So it's like, why would I limit my 10-year plan to what my mediocre now brain can imagine mm. when I could just let things happen and let the intelligence of life kind of guide me? Because I, I will know much more in five years than I know now. So I don't want to box myself into a bunch of plans that are going to not fit who I'll become, you know,
2: yeah, I just wrote down the phrase mediocre now brain that's a good one
1: <laughs> it's so true it doesn't know anything it's 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 so- it's so small compared to what could happen
0: maybe to to elaborate on this too is a particular experience that happens uh when we're traveling, especially when we're vagabonding, which is that we will go somewhere and one of two things could happen actually that can kind of illustrate this point is one, we can have expectations and then where we go and see doesn't live up to them. Mm. That, that one's pretty common. And the other one, which is, this is, I think what a lot of times where the magic is in this kind of vagabonding is we can be t- totally taken by surprise by, or it could be a totally mundane moment, or we could end up in a village. Like you, like you said, Ralph, we could just take a bus somewhere or whatever. Maybe we end up staying the night at someone's house and they cooked it, whatever it is. And, all of a sudden, there's all these things you never could have imagined, you could not have planned for. And it's it's kind of, and I, I love this about your book, Rolf, is because your book is such a self-discovery book. It's such mm. an encouragement of learning more about who we are and maybe who we're not as well. And and there's a there's a quote that you you have in there by by Thoreau. And and I'm gonna quote uh you quoting Thoreau, and it, he says, if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined he will meet with the success unexpected in common hours he will put some things behind will pass an invisible boundary new universal and more liberal laws will begin to establish themselves around and with him and sorry around and within him and i think this is a beautiful quote and it gets to this idea that as we start to Go on this adventure and maybe of not knowing, we start to realize that there's things we could never have imagined. Mm. And as we start to follow those things, more things that we never could have imagined. And then you end up in a way, and this has been true for me since I started vagabonding five years ago, you end up in a life you never imagined. Yes.
2: Well, I was literally having a conversation for my upcoming podcast with my friend Dan. I met him in a hostel in Cairo, Egypt, this mm. wonderful hostel. I remember specifically. He was a raft guide in, in in he was really young. He was in from Arizona. He would take tourists down the river and he was a good raft guide, but he wasn't sure what he wanted to do in life. We were standing in the hostel kitchen cooking rabbits with a mutual friend Paul, who is who was a city planner in San Diego. And Dan suddenly became interested in this. And so when Dan joined the Peace Corps a few months later, they asked him what he wanted to do. And he just spitballed city planner, right? He wasn't educated in city planner. He had a a conversation in a hostel about city planning. And they didn't literally make him a city planner, but they sort of made him a development person during his post in Honduras. And that basically now he lives in Wellington, New Zealand, and he's sort of part of their disaster response team. Wow. That is based on the civic training that he sort of invented for himself that traces back to a conversation <laughs> over boiling rabbit in a hostel, right? And another thing is, is he said he'd never been in New Zealand, but Kiwis are such good travelers. He just met so many. He thought, yeah. they must be doing something good in New Zealand, so I'm going to go there. <laughs> well, now he's married to a Kiwi. His kid's speaking with these crazy, you know, Kiwi accents, right?
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and so if, again, if he would have limited things, to, you know, if he would have bucket listed his way through the Middle East, he wouldn't have had that random conversation that literally changed his Peace Corps post because he sort of, in that good old American way, he just sort of spitballed his way through the interview and said, yeah, you know, I learning a little bit about city planning. And so they put <laughs> him into development. And now suddenly he's he's a happy guy, he he lives you know in Wellington, he overlooks the sea, he has a couple of adorable kids, and um, that literally changed his life. And it sounds like you guys did too, that you guys were open to each other, for example, at a tea shop in Pushkar. And these are the things that count more than what we thought we were supposed to see, because odds are you have to wait in line two hours to see what you're supposed to see anyway, right?
1: Yeah, and, and I think for me, like th- this is exactly what happened to us, and and it what's what's crazy is that is that it's continuing to happen to us. It's like mm. I think a part of me thought, okay, w- after we met, we were both in complete shock. Like, oh my god, this is like out of a movie. I never could have imagined this. This is crazy, and I kind of thought, okay, well if this is a movie, then there's a moment where the craziness stops, right? And it becomes more predictable. And no, it's actually just getting more and more unpredictable, but more and more amazing. And it's, the, life continues to throw things at me that I never could have foreseen. And I couldn't be more excited about it, because it's actually better than what I could have foreseen. So it's, I think this gets, I want to really... kind
0: of like the unfolding of a path you've never walked.
1: Yes, yes, and it's it's this idea that the path of the of the traveler, and in this case, the traveler of life, not just the traveler of places, you have to walk it. It's not there. It's you just go one step at a time, and it appears. Uh, but I think most of us, and I was definitely in that category, we are terrified of having that approach because taking only one steps. We live in a culture that wants to have the next 25 years planned. And I think this maybe is a good place to go to this idea of success because I think I was totally in that mindset back when I was still living in Paris, being a cook and doing my life back then. I I was seeing my life being planned over the next 25 years and that terrified me. But for some people... It's more terrifying to take the, the leap and we want to stay in these like kind of boxed plans. And I feel like what our society is telling us is that this is the definition of success is you, you graduate from high school and then it's all planned out from there. And, and this is success. And
0: I feel to add on to this, because um, I'd like to hear you comment on this as well, Ralph. is like, I feel like also what society is saying is, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit earlier is, don't trust your experience. Mm. And your book is all about saying, hey, go out and have your own experience. I mean, the quote on the first page, I don't remember it exactly, but it's it's Walt Whitman, I think, in Leaves of Grass saying like, basically saying like, hey, this is my experience, but don't take it for your own. Yes. I think that's the the opening quote in your book. And I love that. And I think that's a, a message that goes through your entire book, which is like, go out there, and get your own experience and start trusting it. And I think that's something that we're really scared. And I think this goes into us not knowing how to trust our intuition or really being learned how to be intuitive sometimes with our experience. But this is this is one thing that I think scares a lot of us about about doing something like vagabonding.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Whitman, one thing I love about him is that he'll often talk to future generations. He'll say, you know, I'm standing on the shore on, in here in Brooklyn. and It's amazing. And I, I want you 150 years from now to understand how amazing this is, because it's going to be amazing for you too. I mean, he was inclusive, not just of the the complexity of life, but of the fact that life would keep happening after him. Um, in a way that's worth celebrating. And so he, he says, yeah, that everything that I claim is my own, you should offset with your own or else your time were lost listening to me, right? So he wants to inspire you, but not just in that passive way. And I think that's a common thing that we, there's so many inspirational podcasts now that we can passively be inspired full time without really embracing our own experience, right? I think one of my favorite quotes in the book that doesn't often get repeated, but it's by Antonio Machado. He says, traveler, there is no path. Paths are made by walking.
1: Actually, I think Alistair wanted to read it. It was pulled up on the screen. (laughs) I want to read it. So yeah, great. I love that quote.
2: Yeah. Well, it it goes in the idea that all too often, especially in America, we see life as a consumer experience. Mm. These are our options. These are the expensive ones. These are the mid-priced ones. If they're not satisfying, then you can complain because you're a consumer. Actually, life is better lived as a pilgrim, you know, Mm -hmm. where basically you're wandering off and you don't know what's gonna happen yet. You're not exactly sure you have ideals, but you don't have a whole lot of plans. You're making that path by walking on it. And this is is metaphorical as as well as literal, that you can literally travel on the road Mm. or you can make your own path. And by doing that, you're doing something that's much more dynamic and much more personal and much more life-affecting that if you're just following somebody else's path and thinking, huh, well, this path isn't as good as they thought it was. I want my money back, right?
1: <laughs> So so
2: there's this there's this entitlement. <laughs> we're walking through the world and we're entitled in a way that's cheating ourselves, you know, that we should only have ourselves to blame if we're if the path doesn't live up to it and if the path doesn't live to it that's part of life too and life is good.
1: I feel like we even we're even now because I feel like for the last maybe 15 20 years, maybe 10 years, the whole the spiritual and the mindfulness and the yoga, it's getting really like popular it's it's very it's becoming mainstream like you know those meditation apps and all these things and even that has turned into something you can consume and actually never follow your own path in it. You know, it's you can you can listen to podcasts of people who have had, uh, who who are living their own pilgrimage, and then think, oh, I'm going to do exactly the same way, that, the same thing that they did, and then feel like, oh, it's not working. But it's like, no, you were supposed to figure it out for yourself. It's a very personal thing, and I I think this goes back to what you were saying, Alistair, about we are too afraid to trust our own experience our own intuition as if it's something that that's going to work out there there there's a lack of faith there's a lack of trust that it's going to work out basically
2: yeah and and um again i i think you know in vagabonding i talk about i think national geographic ha- traveler had a story about there was a solace boom that suddenly it's hip to go to a meditation retreat mm. you know to go to a so a place in Greece where you can um, hang out in ch- in ch- churches and chant with the monks. And it's like really a solace boom. It's now fashionable to be spiritual, right? Yeah. So we we just have a way of consumerizing everything. Yeah. Um, and I try not to knock anything. I'm sure somebody had a deadline to make on that uh, that article. But, like, <laughs> how, how spiritual is it if you're like shopping for your spiritual retreat and it's like, oh, well, this one seems to have better meals than this one. Um and then <laughs> yeah. it, it, it happens with volunteering too. People will shop for a volunteering experience when in fact, you know, if, you, if you've if you taught English, go to the local high school when you're in Myanmar and, and see if they want an English teacher. And my experience is that 100% of the time they do want a local person to come and help with the English class. And so just remember that you do have agency. You, you do, you can sign up for a spiritual retreat and I'm sure people's lives have been changed at spiritual mm-hmm. retreats. But if you live a time wealth life, then you don't have to shoehorn a retreat in, you can just go stumble around like a fool through a country, if it's spiritual tradition is Orthodox Christianity or Buddhism or whatever, and then suddenly you're interacting with people and you find a way to deepen your life spiritually in a way that is similar to what a pilgrim might experience rather than a consumer. It's such a, again, when, when, when you seed your life with time, you don't really have to be a consumer. You don't have to complain about how something's not working because if it doesn't work, you can shrug and try something else.
0: I like that you say it's personal, uh, like, like a pilgrim, because a pilgrim walks through the land, right? And he has a personal interaction with mm-hmm. the land. And that makes it meaningful. And and I'm actually, more than that, I'm thinking of a Joseph Campbell quote, and I'm par- I'll paraphrase it, but he says something like, I don't think people are so much looking for the meaning in their lives as they are of the experience of being alive. Mm-hmm. And as a pilgrim walking having a personal interaction i think you're getting both it becomes very meaningful but maybe more important is you feel alive i never felt more alive than when i started traveling mm-hmm. and and i think it's been kind of a project to keep that going ever since i i tasted it again <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, I I, I just want to quote because I think it gets at what you were saying, uh, Rolf, uh, about the whole like purchasing uh, an experience, Um, especially a spiritual one. You, You say in the book, purchasing a package vacation to see a simpler life is kind of like using a mirror to see what you look like when you aren't looking into the mirror. And it's, yeah. it's just like, Oh, wow. I totally get that. That makes total <laughs> sense. That is so simple and efficient. It, it's, I think I, I, I feel for the person that I used to be that didn't realize that what I was experiencing was not really aliveness. And it's only in taking the leap and in like jumping off that cliff with no proof that I'm going to get caught that. I've experienced real aliveness, and I now that I look back on how I felt before, I don't wish that upon anyone. I feel like it's it's such a dead, dull life, and and you, yeah, there's there's no richness to it. There, it's it was just pretty black and white, honestly. Did you feel like that before you before you started traveling, or did you have a similar realization?
2: To an extent, yes, I, you know, I think I, a lot of my early travel careers were motivated by the fact that I didn't think I would be able to do it again. Mm. You know, I, I, I thought that I had to ask permission to have travel time when in fact, anyone just has to give that time to themselves, you just have to choose to block off that time. And, it, and it's funny to stretch the, the mirror metaphor. Well, now we have the black mirror in our pocket, right? You know, mm. that instead of trying to see what we're not looking like when we're not looking in the mirror, We're now looking at the phone to figure out how we should live when we're not living, right? Mm. And so (laughs) I just love the idea of the pilgrim, the pilgrim walks, right? And actually, even during the pandemic, you can slip on your mask or walk to a place without crowds and walking is a way of engaging with life Mm. that is, is very physical, it's very meditative. We think in different patterns when we walk. In fact, we think in more expansive ways, I think, when we walk. Also, writing in a journal, and I mean often a paper journal that you're not distracted by online things, that's another way of engaging with the process of the day, of reflecting on, well, what about this day was important? What about this day do I want to embrace? What surprised me about this day? Or even just talking, you know. Um, the fact that you guys it sounds like you guys have traveled a lot, probably your most memorable times aren't when you're sharing funny YouTube videos on your phones, <laughs> but when you're sitting someplace beautiful or someplace stressful or sitting on a bus that was just way too long and just getting to know each other and sort of trying to figure out things about the culture. And so mm. I think that the way to escape your black mirror is amazingly simple. It's just go for a walk. I walk until your day becomes interesting. Talk
0: to the person who's sitting next to you it's it's uh it's amazingly simple. we went for a walk yesterday and we're in a, a San Jose suburb and the first two people we saw were walking their dogs while looking at their phone with headphones in yeah. and, and it's just i I don't know why that just came to mind it's like it can kind of take over anywhere you and and I feel like that's why another thing you say in your book quite a lot is like bag bonding is about living intentionally mm. um it's about Spending your time intentionally—it's about spending your money intentionally, right? Too, because you talk about the the challenge of money, of like when do we have enough? With you don't need a ton of money, you just need to spend it intentionally. Mm. That that can free you, free up a lot of time for for you to vagabond, right? And and then it can
2: make you make hard choices with your money that can free up your travel time. You know, because I was just. A year and a half ago, I was in Indonesia. I stayed in one of my, one of the best beach places. I stayed at a beach hut that people dream about. Mm. That people dream of of earning a million dollars retiring and going to. It cost me $18 a night, including three meals, right? <laughs> All I had to do was show up, right? <laughs> and, and so then I think you get into this pattern where you are encouraged to make, again, these consumer decisions where suddenly you're paying $120 for a pair of jeans and then you realize, wait a second, $120 for a pair of jeans, you know, that that's at least a week at this most beautiful place in the world in Sumatra, right? Yeah. And, and so then suddenly time wealth um, or experience wealth, experience um, possibility becomes a part of the way you make these decisions. And your habits just, and it's something that you guys have touched in, into that that once you start stumbling into serendipity it, it it sort of starts pushing your life forward and pretty soon you're not making crappy financial decisions you're not blowing you know 500 dollars a month on fancy coffee because you know that 500 dollars a month can can um give you an experience that's much more likely to give you an experience that will make you smile in your old
0: age right mm-hmm. so it, it's such a crucible for figuring out what your values are. I, I find vagabonding mm. because you go through these, and you and you make plenty of mistakes, right? But like, at you each of those decisions is a new information point, and and the results as well of what's worth it and what's not. Yeah. And over time, you come out of it, you know, kind of knowing yourself pretty well and knowing what's worth the money. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you understand what
2: money is, you know, um, that I think people can live their entire life feeling this compulsion that they need to buy certain brands of products. or they, they need to join this social club or, or, you know, do this activity week after week, when in fact you, that's something you need to figure out for yourself, you know, that you really need to figure out what you love to do. Um, and if, and if, this is a bad example, but if joining the country club and playing golf 3 times a week makes you happy then sure, that's a good investment. But if it's a if it's a way to impress your neighbors or because your granddad did it or whatever, I think that it's it's good to figure those things out. And one thing I tell about young people who travel, you know, they're they're sort of torn up about whether they should travel before or after college. Personally, I traveled after college, which is fine, but I said There's so many people who go to university and they don't even know what they like yet. They don't even know what they love or are in love with. And by traveling a year or two years or six months, you could go and realize that you're really great at languages or you're good at engineering and math problems or that you're good at negotiation. And pretty soon you have a stronger sense of what you love. So I think. Travel and the metaphorical sense of travel isn't just about doing what you love, but it's about finding what you love and what you're good at, mm. and discovering parts of yourself that you never knew existed and you would never know existed if you stayed at home and lived your tidy, responsible consumer life.
0: Yeah, and in the example of college, I think you know if you're, especially these days, it's such an investment. Like that would actually be a very prudent way yeah. to consider spending that much money on an education. Uh, is to spend a little time actually grappling with what it is you you really want to pursue. Um, and I think all this kind of gets back to this idea of of like really trusting your experience and deciding to have it, deciding to really be in the world. Um, I, I wanted to speak about maybe one other thing that seems connected to this, or it, there's kind of a string of things, but there's two things that strike me is that the other part travel from a spiritual perspective we talked about being with reality and i think Mm -hmm. this is another aspect of it which is disillusionment is is like travel when we when we travel and this is another part of the spiritual path right is finding the ways that we're not seeing reality clearly uh and and travel is such a it's such a practical hands-on way i think to like really get your hands around having a spiritual journey even if you didn't plan on it because Uh it requires you to simplify and it requires you can only carry what's on your back i mean maybe you could take a suitcase but that gets pretty cumbersome if if you're gonna vagabond but you can only take so much stuff and you have to really let go of a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. and then you you're in a way kind of naked to experience or that's hopefully what happens and then you have all your illusions, kind of, rev- or at least some of them, revealed to you. Um, and it's such a it's such a beautiful experience.
1: Yeah, i i i just see i just see everything we're talking about right now as this. You just hack away the superfluous. You know, it, 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 you're left with the bare the bare core of of who you are, what you like, what are your actual interests and what is not interesting to you. Because when you have all the options open, it becomes really clear, really fast what you end up choosing over and over again. You know, like Alistair, your example is that when you traveled, you started trekking. And before that, that was not part of your life. And now you're, that's all you do because you ended up choosing that option over and over again. It was such a clear sign that this was your calling your thing um and and it and i'm sure for some people it's like writing for other people it's hanging out with people for some people it might be a great discovery that they actually like to be alone i think that was one of mine that was huge for me yeah uh so it's i think this is where uh, vagabonding can be such a deep self-understanding process. And I feel like the longer you do it, the more you understand, because there's always going to be superfluous that you can remove almost.
2: Yeah. And and then, you know, again, when, you, when you've packed so light and you're away from home, there's really nothing left to hide behind. Mm-hmm. You just, yeah. there's just you and, and there's your own proclivities. And, travelers before me have said that you can escape everything on a journey except yourself, right? So (laughs) that's why I say to to, to try and settle all of your things before you, your sets, your debts, emotional and financial before you leave, because then that's just less that you're, that you have to wrestle with to slow you down. But even, I was just thinking, you're talking about trekking. Trekking is a great activity uh, to engage in. But I think the more you do it, the more you realize that trekking In itself, need not be a goal-oriented thing because, for example, my girlfriend loves trekking, but she can't go trek in the Alps right now, Mm. right? Um, but and so just this morning we were researching treks in Kansas. Mm. Well, there's no mountains in Kansas, but there's 50, 100 mile treks that we never knew it existed, and this is our home state, right? So I think that once you discover that part of yourself, you become less of it becomes less of a contest. You know, what is the Mount Everest of my mountains? You know, people, people climb and die on Mount Everest every year and the second through 10th highest mountains are barely climbed at all yeah. by comparison. But once you figure out what you love, then you can do it anywhere and it's, it's an exercise in yourself, right? So when we go trekking, hopefully we'll go trekking once it stops being hot in Kansas, then we're gonna discover a part of that trekking part of ourselves mm-hmm. um, that may be more spectacular in the Alps but is 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 something personal that we've discovered that we love, and re- regardless of where it happens, it's going to be an exercise in w- our own core, in our spiritual self, in our way of being in the world. Um, that's so much greater than the mediated life. Again, even during the pandemic, and and it's funny how, um, I guess it's not funny, but I think much like travelers, everybody in the world now is realizing that their expectations have fallen through, yes. you know, that they didn't realize that we weren't, I mean, you read the literature of anything and there's always plagues, you know, a, yeah. a lot of great travel books talk about certain plagues and quarantines and stuff. And suddenly humanity is back in history. You know, we, we had a free <laughs> pass from history and now we're back in history. And I think the people who are dealing with this, the best are the ones that realize that, well, Sometimes expectations don't come true, Mm. and sometimes you can find beautiful things uh, in the face of expectations that have gone the wrong way. So who knows what we'll we'll find on our Kansas trek, but it's part of an exercise that's sort of part of our happiness and our mental health that's a good thing to embrace at a time like this.
0: Mm. One thing around the the whole trekking thing, which I'm constantly reminded when I trek is I'm there to be in the mountains. I'm not there to climb a particular mountain um, and and i've 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 literally uh, endangered my life learning that lesson at least once mm-hmm. that I can remember, but I think several times but Every time it's remembering, like, because when you look at a map, you're like, oh, I'm going to get there. And like, it becomes this like goal oriented thing. And you get out there and you realize, oh, yeah, the reason I wanted to do that was because (laughs) I like to be in the mountains. It's not because I need to climb that peak. (laughs) And I'm killing myself today, like trying to do 20 miles and like 3000 feet or 8000 feet for nothing. Like the point was to be out here, slow down. And that's something you talk about, actually, in the book quite a bit is slow down as a traveler slow down as a vagabonder and i wonder if you might comment on that a little bit
2: well yeah i, I think s- slowing down it but you basically gives you the choice not to have to follow your bucket list it gives you the cho- the choice not to be stressed out by everything and, and not worrying about what you might be experiencing elsewhere because if you don't like a place then you can maybe spend another day there and then move on if you don't like it or if you love a place you can get a job and stay there for a couple months and, and really enjoy it. You know, when you were talking about climbing mountains, I was thinking about John Krakauer, who wrote Into the Wild yeah. about Christopher McCandless. He identifies with Christopher McCandless because he remembers just climbing mountains when he was young, just sort of compulsively, you know, in ways that ended up being kind of stupid, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, and we've sort of lionized Christopher McCandless. He's certainly an interesting and troubled person, but he didn't have to die, right? Yeah. Uh, that he put himself through a little initiative ended up being a little bit foolish and and um you know he he obviously had a um a very sensitive soul but he basically cheated himself out of the next 60 years of his life because he made these short-term decisions he 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 was jumping through hoops mm. instead of mindfully trying to embrace the early part of his life. And so I think that's one great thing that we, that can have, you know, I, I started writing vagabonding when I was in my twenties. It came out when I was in my early thirties. I think oftentimes when people are young, when they're in their twenties, they think they need to get things done. They need to, they need to do their travel so they can move on with their life.
0: Yeah,
2: And so I think part of the reason, part of my advice about slowing down was sort of a young person's realization that, Oh, actually I'm not ruining my, my the rest of my life mm. by traveling. I'm not, ruining my resume, and in fact, um, digital nomadism has blown up since Vagabonding came out, but you, that literally, um, not only can you put it on your resume, you can take your job uh, abroad. Yeah. And so I think there's all these pressures that make us think that we need to be hyper-efficient, when in fact, slowing down, and maybe not just walking through landscapes, but sitting still and letting landscapes move through you, mm-hmm. um, are, are are equally valid things. And that's one thing of all the luxuries that come with buying yourself time, mm. the ability to slow down and enjoy that three-hour Parisian lunch or to climb halfway up a mountain and just sort of fall in love with a meadow and, and swim in an icy lake without making it to the peak. That is, that's the gift of, of time-rich travel that allows you to be slow.
1: I, that's, I think that's honestly, uh, I'm still in my 20s. I'm 28, so uh, I'll count that. Uh, but one of the things I've loved the most over the last four years has been reading and interacting with people who have had a longer life experience than me. Some of them like in their 60s or 70s because they are such a beautiful reminder that life is so long, you know, that I don't need this thing about life is short. Yeah, it depends on how you look at it. But I feel much healthier and happier when I realize that life is so long. And I don't need to rush through it. There's nowhere to go. My dad always says, you know, it's like you can rush through life, but at the end, we're going all to the same place. And if you want right. to get there faster, you can. But <laughs> I'm going to take my time going to the, to death, you know? It's, it,
0: and when you take it slow, time has a way of slowing down. Yes. Well, yeah. Actually,
2: I was thinking that, you know, I think in the United States, maybe to an extent in France, but we're sort of a youth-worshipping culture. Mm. And... So much of what we talk about is achievement, not appreciation. It's about becoming and not being. And, um, you know, I'm, I'll be 50 this year, um, which is crazy to think about. I don't feel 50. <laughs> 50 sounds really old. But I've been reading uh, Richard Rohr, who's, a, who's a, I think, a Franciscan uh, writer and thinker, who talks about the second half of life and and just the idea that your first half of life, you know, Odysseus does his journey, but then he has to come home and make peace with his island, you know. I think that in a way, um, being a little bit older, if you allow yourself to be old in a graceful way, or mm-hmm. to be older, I'm not gonna call myself old, to be older <laughs> in, in a graceful way, um, then you can use all of those lessons and perspectives that you find when you're younger. Yes. Um, and you can really be yourself, because so much of youth is is, is trying to figure out who you are and, be, and becoming what you wanna do and what you love to do. And then the second half of life is finding ways to enjoy it. Mm. My dad this weekend tur- is turning eighty-one, and, and I'm taking him on a little pandemic road trip, and it's been fun. I when when I'm not traveling, I live next door to my parents um, here in Kansas, and it has been so instructive to see them move through their seventies and now my dad their eighties because there is so so much of a life is still available to you. And like perhaps you guys, I've seen people in their sixties, seventies, eighties on the road, mm-hmm. and. Um, <laughs> When When my parents were in my sixties, I took them to a hostel in in China, and after about fifteen minutes, everybody forgot they were in their sixties, right yes. you know, like the Scottish people and the Japanese people and the Brazilian people were just treating my parents like anybody else, and that was such a fun thing to see because why should why should we let age? Prejudice us against our common humanity, you know?
1: And I have to say, I can't remember, I like some of the people that I've enjoyed spending time the most on the road in hostels and guest houses were these elder travelers, you know? And, and I I just want to reflect on, you know, don't want to call, don't want to call yourself old. I think old like there's a weird connotation and I kind of think about it as like, how do we become an elder and as a guide, like someone who just has been walking on the path for a little longer. And, and, you know, it's not so much a matter of the age, it's more the experience that has been gathered. Um, and so, yeah, I've I've had beautiful conversations and life-changing experiences in my travels with older elder people, who kind of shared their wisdom, and because it's embodied, it hits you in a different way. It's not like reading a book or hearing a twenty-two-year-old give you a quote. It's like, oh, okay, mm. you've lived that; you know what you're talking about. Um, so, yeah, I, I well, that yeah,
2: that's probably time-rich wisdom, right? Mm. You know that I think we collect a lot of quotes, and I, you know, I put a lot of quotes in Vagabonding, which I wrote, which I started writing when they're I they're all superb. By yeah, the, way. The,
1: the quotes are all <laughs> well, amazing.
2: <laughs> I'm glad you like him. You quoted a lot back and I'm, yeah, I'm having put them in the book, I've I've also interacted with them and I just, yeah, they feel like good little nuggets of wisdom. It's sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, that if somebody yeah. phrases something so perfectly, it saves me having to phrase it that way myself. But um, yeah, time rich, older people have their wisdom and their life experience is rich in time. And yeah, actually, any younger people who are listening to this don't sell people short just because they're not partying on the beach until <laughs> five in the morning. But sometimes the coolest people you can meet are not just fellow travelers, uh, but local people too, who have perspective um, mm. that is that is foreign to you. I, I, again, I think that sometimes we sell our elders short in, in Western countries, um, less so in China. It's funny, one thing about being with my parents in China is that they were always instantly respected. You know, yes. that they had a little bit of gray in their mm-hmm. hair, and so a chair would come out for them. They'd have a glass of water. You know that that some cultures are really better at identifying that the honor and wisdom in in, in being an older person. But that's part of it too. And I'm I'm glad that you've discovered that 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 um older travelers have have deepened your life mm. as they should. Mm. Um, this might be another thing I'll write down you know to sort of talk about the the variance in age I've been a traveler now in gosh several different decades four I've been a deep traveler in four different well I'm not in my fifties yet, so three different decades um and and just sort of having experienced travel at different ages makes me realize what perspective I bring and I miss some of the energy and naivety that I had in my twenties but sort of my self assurance and 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 sort of my instincts are sharper than they used to be in ways that are good for me and maybe uh, at times good for people that I'm around when I am
0: traveling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think maybe as we start to close here, I'd like to read you one travel quote. Well, I I interpret it as a travel quote that's not in your book, but I know you're familiar with it. At least I know you're familiar with the book. Uh, It's by Robert Persig from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And this was a quote that was really kind of bouncing around in my head when I picked up your book for the first time, and when I was really trying to make this transition from a, a, a time-poor life, but also a life that was not very option-filled, to not just a shift in my outer experience, but in, in the way, my, my mentality, um, which I'm very much still on the journey on, but here's the quote. We're living in topsy-turvy times, and I think that what causes the topsy-turvy feeling is inadequacy of old forms of thought to deal with new experiences. I've heard it said that the only real learning results from hang-ups, where instead of extending the branches of what you already know, you have to stop and drift laterally for a while until you come across something that all that, that allows you to expand the roots of what you know. And I wonder if you might uh comment on that in these topsy-turvy times.
2: Yeah, well, um I think sometimes we're resistant to the old or we turn we turn old wisdom into memes and sound bites. But so much of old forms of thought so so many uh time honored ways of thinking are the expressions of people who had a lot harder than we did mm. <laughs> um and in fact, you know just so many you know they talk about how Shakespeare wrote some of his best plays in times of plague um I, I've read some travel books from the nineteenth eighteenth century where people are traveling through times of 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 plague and pandemic, and it's just what they had to deal with and so. You you look at an old philosophy like the Stoics that basically says you can't really control what happens to you in life, but you can control how you react to it, right? Hmm. But what what better wisdom to to hold in a time of pandemic, in this new pandemic that we're dealing with? That we can't stop the pandemic. We're not even really sure how it works. But we we can learn, um, either through, you know, our our, our own wisdom or through our travel experiences or what we read. To react in such a way that it enriches our life and enriches the lives of the people close to us, mm. because there's 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 poor reactions and there's there's better reactions, mm. and I think almost any spiritual text is going to come from an ancient time that is much richer in, in in trials and hardships, and sometimes we sort of have this frosting on the cupcake approach to spiritual wisdom because we don't understand that hardship so much, mm. and so I think. Yeah, now's a time for us to sort of get in touch um with old wise people like Walt Whitman and way beyond, uh, who were dealing with forms of thought in ways that can be instructive to us now because mm. it is it is a common experience and there's ways that we can shift and and um and meet this not only in a way that we can cope, but in a way that we can thrive.
1: Yeah, I, I love that. And something that does come come up for me is these older forms of wisdom, these things that have been said, and and oftentimes these co- very common sense things, you know, like idioms or uh, sayings in the language, they hold so much truth. And not just because they're old and tried and true, but they they just they might seem trivial they might seem like they don't really have a lot to them but when you actually sit with those you know grandmother wisdom like some stuff your grandmother was always saying and it just it was always too much it's it actually is spot on. As soon as you spend a little time with it, you realize like, oh my god, there's so much wisdom to unpack actually. And and I can just sit with a quote from 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 my grandmother and and feel like I'm learning a lot. Uh so so yeah, I I really really like that. I'd like to end our conversation with because you know we're still very early on our vagabonding journey. I'd say we're about four or five years in. I hope so. We're it's it's gonna keep unfolding, um, and I think your first vagabonding trip was like twenty six years ago. Is that correct? Did I get that right?
2: Yeah, my first vag, van vagabonding trip. I did a podcast about it. Man, that was so much fun. You can only do your first trip once. You know?
1: <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. Um, and so I just, I wonder what vagabonding looks like for you now and not necessarily just in the time of the pandemic, but what does it look like for you at, the, at your stage of life that you're in now? Because it's, as you said, it's obviously different than when you were in your twenties. And so I'm just curious. Um, uh, and I feel like it would give us a sense of, okay, what happens later? Cause we've seen the vagabonding change for us already. And so I'm really curious where you're at with it.
2: Well, I think it, it goes back to that attitude, you know, that, that vagabonding isn't really set a, a set of rules, but it's, a, it's an attitude that you're always sharpening and that you're always interacting with. Mm. And so those early travels when I was living in a van, those early travels when I was wandering through Asia and just being amazed every day, I can't really embrace the world in the same way I did that I was in my 20s. And that's fine. You know, sometimes I feel nostalgic for those days, but those helped sharpen the attitude that I'm still sharpening. And I think there are certain things like curiosity and openness that are things that once you have instincts for travel, you can continue to let those drive your your travels. Just like I said, my girlfriend and I are probably going to go for a long multi-day hike in Kansas, which w- would have been unthinkable when you can fly to
1: <laughs> the Himalayas or the
2: Andes or something, right? And so I think there's a certain joy in that and maybe I would have been just as happy if I would have made that decision in my 20s, but I think that there's ways of sharpening that attitude and that knowing that it's not about the points on the bucket list, but those points between the points, you know, the, the wanderings, the uncertainties, and the 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 improvisation that becomes important. And what I never want to be is that expert, that know-it-all traveler who mm. is is Buddha on top of the mountain. I always want to be a little bit of a fool and I always want to be a little bit lost um and find my own way. Because um, even though I'm more sophisticated, I have different instincts than I did. I don't ever want to be complacent with who I am as a traveler. And at this time, as certainties are even less than they used to be, um, I sort of see this as part of my ongoing adventure.
0: That's beautiful. Um, Ralph, I wanna give you a, a big thank you for taking the time to to talk about this with us and to share your your ideas with our listeners. You know, I was struck, I reread your book this week. Uh, it was kind of a good homecoming, you know, to kind of touch back to where I started, um, which in a lot of ways was your book. And, you know, I was kind of expecting it to be um, out of date in some ways, <laughs> like because of the pandemic, at least like there'd be some juxtapositions. And I was shocked how, no, it's really not at all. And, and maybe we can't, travel quite in the same way but the mindset mm-hmm. and the journey that you were really encouraging people to go on in that book is as relevant if not more relevant than when I read it five years ago um, and I would strongly recommend anyone who who is here still and and interested in this this conversation to read that book because mm-hmm. I you write in such a uh, I don't know it, it, there's a it's it's like you write in a slow way. It's a beautiful book to read. And I, I can tell that a lot of experience and a lot of effort went into it. Is there, besides uh, your va- your book Vagabonding, is there anywhere else you'd like to uh, maybe direct people's attention to if they want to uh, follow your journey more, learn a bit more about you?
2: I'd send them to my podcast. I mean, you can go to rolfpotts.com, which sort of has links to all of my books and all of my articles and Different interviews and and uh, but then one thing that I've been very active in, even amidst the pandemic, is my podcast, which is called Deviate with Rolf Potts, and um, it's where I continue to think out loud about this this great adventure called life and how travel fits into it and how travel adjacent things fit into it. Uh, as I was saying, my parents are, are getting older, and I was worrying about losing them, so I decided to interview them about how they dealt with it when they lost their parents. So I have not just travel content on my podcast, but some general life stuff um, that that is on my mind. And <sighs> vagabonding is a good step, but I build a lot on system vagabonding ideas in my various podcast episodes. Mm. Mm.
1: Yeah, so that's Deviate with Rolf Potts, highly recommended as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming today. Uh, we had a blast talking to you.
2: Yeah, thank you, Rolf. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for your, uh, your questions and your engaged attitude. I'm excited about you guys' further adventures.
1: Thank you. You bet. And thank you for listening.
0: Thank you. Thank you. That was a really fun conversation.
1: That was a lot of fun. I feel like very uh, full of soft <laughs> <laughs>
0: And I can't recommend enough. Go steep yourself in Rolf's thinking, whether it's the book or his podcast. I think he's very grounded mm. and, and has a wonderful way of looking at life and I I find a lot of benefit every time I dip back into uh, to Rolf's thoughts and Rolf's experiences
1: totally we're very grateful that he came on the show today
0: and you can find links to his podcast and the book at thefarout.life slash
1: podcast slash (laughs) 94
0: I wasn't sure what episode was
1: (laughs) (laughs) um And the way that you can support this podcast and the growth and the expansion of our conversations are?
0: Well, first, you can support it financially. We have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash TheFarOutCouple. It's awesome. And for as little as $3 a month, which is just a little more than nothing, (laughs) uh, you can get all sorts of great things. We commonly add um, extras extra pieces of podcasts there's a lot of different content on there so if you love the show if you want a little more or if you just want to support this and help us bring it out and make it happen you can go there and sign up
1: the second way that you can support us is you can share this conversation with a friend or share it on your social media if you've enjoyed it
0: and the third way is to leave a review on iTunes Apple Podcasts, whatever they call themselves these days, uh, even a rating, a rating and a review—it's all very helpful. And I just want to say one thing about all three of these things because we say them every week, and we say them because they're really important. Whether it's a financial support, whether it's just sharing it with someone else, or whether it's helping us get found in the algorithms—they go a long way. Yes. This is a very, this is an independent kind of homemade podcast. And, um, it requires a
1: lot of energy and resources that we're happy to provide, but it, it is nice when it's met with energy.
0: Yeah, and, and really your engagement actually makes a difference. Uh, totally. The things you do really help this podcast. Everyone so far who's reviewed it, everyone so far who's donated, thank you, thank you. Everyone so far who has shared this with somebody else, Thank you, everyone who has mentioned it on social media. Each one of those counts.
1: It is so much. It is
0: another penny in the savings account, and yeah. it really helps us. Um, so, that that I think uh, I think we'll just uh, say goodbye now. And we love you.
1: <laughs> we love you, and we'll see you next week. Toodles. Toodles. <laughs>